You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to the School's Out episode of Sprogcast, also known as episode number 52. For anyone preparing to embark on midwifery training next term, we've got a fab interview with midwife and researcher Phoebe Pilotti. And for your summer reading, we're talking about Leah Hazard's book, Hard Pushed. I'm Karen Hall. He's Mark Harris. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mark. Just winding down summer holidays. It's nice. Winding down? Mm. So you, you like having your boy around? Um, well, he finishes today. And today? We, we've been off a week already. How lovely for you. Yeah, very nice. Finishes at lunchtime. And um, there will commence the six-week-long battle of not being on Minecraft all the time. Why, but why, why, why have that battle, though? I don't get it. My wife's the same. What, do you think he should just be on Minecraft for six weeks? We'll let him pursue whatever he wants to do. Yeah, I, a, I would like him to... He's an autonomous individual, isn't he? He's a 13-year-old boy with a very, very narrow range of interests. So you feel like my wife does, um, that you need to direct his attention uh, in a specific way? Um, no, I would like to limit the amount of time spent Minecrafting so that he can go and direct his own attention in some other direction. Okay. Just wanted to I, explore the world a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I kind of get it, kind of don't. I think I've been influenced by my own experience of autonomous homeschooling, mm-hmm. where yeah, it used to be called autonomous homeschooling. Uh, John Holt, you know, how children fail and all that stuff. Um, where the challenge for me as a parent doing autonomous homeschooling is to allow the child to explore their their own interests however they unfold without imposing a direction. Uh, well, I know there'll be people out there that say it's ridiculous. You know, a child left to themselves, you'd end up with Lord of the Flies or whatever, or you'd end up you'd end up with them eating sweets all day, or you'd end up with them, God forbid, playing Minecraft all day and stuff like that. I, I, but I I did it. You know, I, this is how uh, my biological children were educated. They they weren't effectively actively um, directed anyway, and they all pursued their own interests. Mm-hmm. And for t- two of my boys, that meant an enormous amount of time on the internet. It's it's interesting, isn't it? There are so many different ways of parenting, and when you come out the other end, hopefully we we all feel like we've done a good job. Yeah, I'm not criticising you. I, I I'm I'm in the midst of a situation where me and my wife have this discussion on almost every other day basis, whether it's about directing um, how he eats along a path that we think is healthy and good, or whether it's directing his screen time in a way that we think is healthy and good. I, I just think it's a it's a difficult balance to find, and I err towards the uh, the position of saying. I wanted to see how all this unfolds, the choices that he's making. And what's her position? Uh, very like yours, funny enough. And and do you feel that he's mature enough to make good decisions or do you think it's important that he makes bad decisions and learns from them? I, I find when dealing with my adult children that they, they don't seem to 
um, learn in the context of me giving them my opinion uh, or stroke direction as to what would be a good thing to do. It's almost like experiential learning is where it's at. You know, unless they've been through a particular situation, worked it out themselves and experienced um, the fallout from, you know, making a decision that didn't quite work. It, they, that they don't seem to learn from my wisdom, inverted commas. I wonder why that is. <laughs> I wonder why. Why do you think? <laughs> I'm I, just I, teasing I, you, Mark. Well, you're allowed to tease me. I, I think it's got more to do with a, an, the way that human beings naturalistically learn rather than how we've become uh, to understand learning. You know, that we've switched from learning occurring in the context of us going about our lives and overcoming difficulties in our environment and all the rest of it, to being sat in a classroom. Uh, you often argue, though, that we're a social animal who learns from each other. Yeah, but, but not necessarily stratified for age and ability in a classroom, mm. you know, which is a social experiment that's about 100 years old. You just, know, just to be clear, I'm not planning a classroom environment for my child for the summer holidays. No, I know you're not. I know you're not. And I'm not. I'm not. I, the only reason I mentioned it is because it's alive in me. Hmm. You know, it's alive in me. So if, if my boy uh, wanted to stay on Fortnite uh, all day, that wouldn't be an issue for me. Right. If, my, if, if my boy doesn't want to eat vegetables, that's not an issue for me. Right. At all. Yeah. So I, I've been reading around the subject of boredom oh yeah it's a good thing yeah feel that that allowing some space for boredom rather than allowing that space to always be filled with um, what is effectively a passive entertainment with from the screen um, yeah. is more encouraging of creativity and initiative and you know just resilience in the face of boredom are you planning something for yourself I'm probably going to be working. But on that basis, I mean, boredom's good for him. It's good for you, right? Yeah, and I feel that I'm quite good at, at um, being resilient in the face of boredom. And I'm also good at filling my time with a range of different things. Socialisation of the human being is not going to stop, is it? You know, and a lot of my wife's arguments are, um, okay, uh, he needs to be able to function inside uh, our social networks, you know, as human beings. So some things he needs to be taught by us, mm. act, actively taught by us. And I, this sounds a bit, oh, I, I think I've got more faith in the human animal's ability to learn. And, and I don't think it's dependent necessarily on my uh, positions on things. Yeah. You know, I don't want to socialise my son uh, into my own value system, although it's impossible not. But there you go. Animals That's really interesting. That. I reckon most parents would want to socialise their child into their own value system. Do you remember um, ages and ages, right at the beginning, we interviewed Emma Cantrell, who, runs the, who started the First Days charity. Occasionally on Facebook, I see her children, the th things that she says about their kind of political positions on things. And I always think, wow, she's, she's really bringing up a little pair of activists there. God, no. No? I really would be far happier uh, if if my youngest son took positions on things that were totally different to mine. Uh, this is where you end up falling out at the, at the dinner table over Christmas dinner. 
Yeah, maybe. But but then but then maybe you know would be able to hold our disagreements um, with mutual respect. That that is also I, that's true. I, and and he might well have learned that over time, you know, through being around us having disagreements. It's, it's why, as parents, me and my wife, we're quite comfortable disagreeing with each other in front of our son. Hmm. So he sees two adults having a disagreement over something and it not coming to blows or or raised voices or or whatever. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I've got so much more to say about this, but I feel like we probably ought to get back hey. to what we're supposed to be doing. Hey, it's a parenting podcast as well, isn't it? Yeah. So there you go. So Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy, birth, parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga, and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. They generously offer a 10% discount to customers using Sprogcast, all capital letters, I'm guessing, uh, as a code at the checkout. So get your books ready for the start of the term. What have they got out at the minute then? Um, I got a copy the other day of Squaring Ooh. the Circle. Oh, yes. I've got that tipped into it. It yeah. looks quite quite thorough. There looks to be some chapters in there that, that will be really interesting. Yeah. And I've also got, which I've started reading, um, Biological Nurturing by Suzanne Coulson. So I read her f the first edition of that, but I guess yeah. this is fully revised. It says second revised and updated edition. Well, when I first got it, I thought, oh, more of the same, you know. And then I had a look through it. I think had that's a look the nature of a second edition, Mark. <laughs> no, but I meant generally. Okay, go on. You know, in terms of the books that come across our desk, you know, it, it's rare in my experience, Karen, to get a book and think, oh, this is red hot. Do you know what I mean? This, this needed to be written. Mm. Yeah, and I dipped into it. And, I, you know, the last time I really felt that was Rebecca Schiller's book. Uh, the first one. Uh, I thought felt it about first one and her second one. So just yes. go read anything by Rebecca Schiller. She's yeah, she's she's brilliant and and invited to speak at your event because she's an amazing communicator. Um, yeah, her her first book, I I thought that. But then when I dipped into this one, I thought this is uh, this is one I'm going to read. Yeah. You know, as opposed to skim through and then do my best to sound intelligent and as though I have read it. Uh, I'm going to read it. I felt there were a lot of themes in that book. Although it's a, a kind of a, a second edition, there are a lot of themes that are current. Yeah. I'm just you adding know. her to the interview list. Yeah, get her on. We yeah. should also I mention um, that we also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash Sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, T-shirts and other exciting rewards. And as of yesterday, Sprogcast is now on Spotify. Are we? Yeah. Woo-hoo-hoo! that happen? Martin, put us on. Oh, nice one. Thanks, Thanks Martin. Martin. <laughs> Have we got some new sponsors this, this month to mention? Um, yeah, Fiona Robertson, thank you very much for signing up as a T-shirt patron. Woo. We'll get that on a, on its way to you. So go Let's check out patreon.com slash broadcast. We've got yeah, extra material. Interviews occasionally pop up there. Yeah. So today we're talking about midwifery care models. Yeah. 
So do you want to give us an outline of what different models there are? Okay, let me just think about when I started as a midwife, because in a way, um, over the last 27 years, I've seen them come and go. You know, so there was uh, the model that I qualified into, which is effectively uh, a situation where you have community midwives, hospital midwives, uh, labour ward midwives, and they are sort of like self-contained teams yeah. that don't interact. So it, it's kind of where the system itself is provided and women come into it. You know, so you're very unlikely to know your midwife uh, at the point of giving birth. It's it's definitely going to be a different midwife in the community, on the ward, in the delivery suite. You know, you're going to meet a different midwife every time. And the service is designed with the convenience of the service in mind. Then what happened was we saw uh, changing childbirth way back in 1994 that recommended continuity of care. In response to that, we saw models that were kind of team-based where you would experience continuity of care, not necessarily continuity of carer. Mm -hmm. So then midwives were encouraged to rotate around all of the different areas so that they would, it was kind of like really, difficult for midwives at the time because they were so used to being in one area that they felt quite insecure about moving into different areas. So midwives were encouraged to move around each area and they would rotate everywhere. They would be in slightly smaller teams. Uh, the idea was that the care given would be the same, but the carer might not. And then that morphed into caseload bearing models where a small team of midwives would would bear the care of a group of women and continuity of carer became the goal so that you would know the midwife, you would see her at booking, you would be more likely to be cared for in labour and more likely to see her when you got home. Right. And in a nutshell, well, that wasn't much of a nutshell, it's quite big, um, they're the models that are out there and everything else is jiggling with them. Yeah. There's not a lot of new thinking out there. So you're talking about how long ago when you qualified? Uh, 90, I qualified in 91, I think, 91, 92. Changing childbirth came out in 93. So when uh, my child was born in 2006, that first model you described is what I experienced. Yeah, and a lot of places in the country, you'll still find that model basically in place. Yeah. You know, because that model is far easier to sustain in an underfunded service. But what you hear from women all the time is, um, certainly antenatally, that they never see the same midwife and they don't like that. Yes. I, I, w I mean, I was a community midwife. The last NHS job I had was as a community midwife. You know, and I, I was part-time and I had a caseload of about 140 women. You know, so the chances That's of... That's huge. It was ridiculous. It was in Coventry. It was ridiculous. But because that's not a continuity of care model, of course. Yeah, so no, you, it, def it definitely You wouldn't wasn't. be dealing with all of them all the time. No, it wasn't. That's the point I'm making is mm. that, you know, when I'm off sick or holiday or whatever, they're going to see another midwife. Yeah. And postnatally, very unlikely to see me. 
So the the sort of more specialised role where you'd have a team in different places, I, I can seeing some advantages to, to having carers who are specialist in their area. So community midwife being specialised in the, the, the stuff that she does and a delivery suite midwife being specialised. Yeah. So you could see some benefits to that. Yeah, I, I think there are benefits to that, but they none of them tick uh, the continuity of carer box. And the research is pretty much shouting out to us that not only do women want that in, in the main, it, it seems to lead to better outcomes, whether it's analgesia, whether it's mode of birth. Um, when there is a continuity of carer throughout the experience, um, outcomes seem to be better. And even in the old uh, O'Driscoll method, you know, which uh, came about, um, I think, uh, the Rotund Hospital um, in Ireland, you know, where active management of labour come in. Um, and the idea was that a woman would go on to labour ward, would have her waters broken, would she would start syntocin on, and she would give birth within a 12-hour period. You know, that that method way back, you know, seemed to reduce the caesarean section rate and all that kind of stuff. But upon uh, closer analysis, it turned out that they had these labour ward assistants that stayed with women for the whole 12-hour period. Ah, yeah. uh, and that seems to have been probably one of the major variables. So all the research is crying out for continuity of carer schemes. But there isn't much new thinking, Karen. Mm. And it, really? It, really, it seems to be a case of saying, well, the evidence says this, but economics say the opposite. It's very difficult to think of creating something that has never existed before. You know, particularly for people that are in the same um, area, the same system. You know, so people within that system have only got their past experiences to work with when they're seeking to create something new. So, of course, no transformational thinking is likely because we're always comparing what we're thinking of doing with what's happened in the past. So that there's no chance of thinking out of that box, really, yeah. in my opinion. What we need is someone from outside of our system to come along and go, this is possible, you know, because they have a different perspective. Uh, you know, I've often wondered whether we could learn from industry, uh, you know, industries that have to offer a 24-hour service, on-call service via Teams, whether we would get new ideas coming from a completely divergent direction. Oh, interesting idea. I'm just going to pause you there because I think it would be interesting to listen to Phoebe Pelotti because she's talking about not something that is a new and original way of thinking about it, but certainly a very creative approach to offering midwifery care in her community. My name is Phoebe Pelotti. I'm a practicing midwife and an associate professor of in midwifery at the University of Nottingham. Um, I was uh, formerly an anthropologist in recovery and um, I also work on a lot of randomised controlled trials looking at maternal and newborn health on, on a global scale, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I've long been interested in research and feminism for maternity care. It's something which has been developed of recent years, certainly within my career, 
Um, but it's something that we need to do a lot more talking about at large, I think, because the science that goes on behind maternity care directly influences what happens in maternity care and who gets maternity care. And whilst that is still, um, well, that still has a narrow focus um, towards uh, questions asked by people who are not necessarily either midwives or pregnant women, we don't necessarily answer all of the questions that desperately need asking. As more background, um, I'm also a trustee of the Ilanthi Midwifery Trust. So we fund midwifery research and training. Um, and I am also currently setting up a small maternity cooperative, almost as an experiment, looking at ways in which we can make maternity care, particularly pregnancy care and uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? I don't even want to use the word education, um, and kind of uh, learning and support for pregnancy for families, more of a user-led service. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to talk about that as well. It's completely up to you. Yeah, that um, sounds really interesting. Tell me more about that. Oh yeah. Um, so this is it's in the very, very early stages. I'll have to uh, uh, apologise to my colleague Julie Clark at the moment, who's setting up with me, um, to uh, for uh, talking about something which is still very embryonic. But we are we started off with the over coffee as these things happen. The world is run by women talking over coffee. Um, really both desperately wanting to do something more clinical work and I do do a little bit of clinical work but it's very few and far between in a formal NHS sense at the moment. I'm also a doula so I do do some doulaing um, but Julie is also another um, clinical academic so um, we wanted to do something that was much more kind of you know where we started from and what it is we really want to do which is it kind of you know be midwives, um, witchy midwives um, and the idea kind of developed in terms of if we completely turned the idea of what healthcare looks like on its head, how could we be part of an organisation that enabled women to um, basically kind of plan and manage their own care and the organisation which that care was kind of, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying. One of the problems with this, the reason I'm stuttering, is that we're also trying to step away from the language of industrialised healthcare. But it's actually quite difficult to think through sentences without saying something like service delivery, which is not what this is about. Mm. Um, so we kind of we wanted to do something which is about kind of uh, turning in its head the very idea of empowerment, because empowerment still automatically means that you are giving something to someone, and that's it was never ours to give as midwives. It was always the woman's power. And the fact that we even frame it in terms of being something that is given back to women, individualised care, seems to mean in the wider discourse at the moment, and this is a very critical way to describe it because there's a lot of good work going on, um, seems to mean essentially that we take into account much more detail about a woman's life before we feed her into a particular part of the sausage factory that is maternity care. Um, and we wanted to... We asked ourselves the question: What does, what would a part, you know, a care kind of, a care experience look like if it was entirely led by the women who were um, pregnant, basically? So we thought of using a cooperative model, um, because in that sense, everyone who was a member, which would be everyone involved in the in the in the co-op, would have direction, uh, equal direction, and equal stake in the development and the direction of the organisation. Um, and also kind of incorporating lots of kind of wider um, ideas in terms of pregnancy support. So really putting a focus on mutual community support for the pregnant women so that a lot of things would be about socialisation rather than necessarily um, kind of di didactic learning, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, we will offer our 
midwifery skills in terms of routine antenatal and postnatal care as part of this we're also hoping to work with doulas although the doula we well who will work with us I'm currently about to be a doula for because she's about to give birth <laughs> so that might be a little a few months after before she joins us um but um it was yeah it was about kind of recreating the idea of maternity care as being something situated in the community something owned by the women for whom the care was for which is actually a very old idea yeah. and I say experimental but this is this is as ancient as it comes and it's only actually with the NHS which I you know I'm behind 110 percent that we've that this model doesn't seem to be the normal one almost um and it's it's obviously we have to do this within the context of what women need and the systems that are at the moment and we're developing um a relationship with our local trust which I have worked with actually and kind of you know have, have a lot of respect for as, as a maternity trust um and kind of working out how best we can kind of integrate things that we may, women may need from obstetricians and from the hospital as well as from us if that makes sense um, and at the moment there's no way as midwives we can offer birth because it would make it prohibitively expensive because of the insurance issues mm. which is a real shame but we cannot currently see a way around this so and um, there will be some payment at the point of care though it kind of as a cooperative um it, you know can, can be extended over a very long period of time um but in order it would it would be it would make it five times as expensive to offer birth within this birth midwifery birth support. Obviously, we'll be working with doulas as birth companions. Um, so that's kind of that's one of the limitations due to the system we're already facing. So is it um, that you're offering the the postnatal and antenatal care, and the birth is not happening there, or or that that everything is free at the point of access? Um, there's no there. There's no there to happen really because it's, it's about you know, we would always be you know where the woman wanted us to be, not where in our in our professional uh, base if yeah. that makes sense yeah yeah um, yeah so we're kind of we're part part of it would be antenatal postnatal midwifery care and breastfeeding support and all of the kind of the holistic aspects around that we're also working with a yoga teacher and we have hypnobirthing teachers um and people as part of the organization um but yeah yeah I mean, they would they would have to if they wanted to use midwifery services for birth they would have to book with a hospital yeah and that's we're working out the nitty-gritty of that to make sure it's as, as low impactly annoyingly paperworky as possible um for the women we don't mind how much paperwork we do women wise yeah. <laughs> um but yeah that um, but but there is such good evidence that doulas make a huge amount of difference to women's experiences and hard outcomes um and also i think valuing doulas for their own sake not in this context as a replacement for midwives simply that they are enabled in this setup in a way that we as midwives are not i think would be the best way to look at it yeah and and the setup you're describing sounds very red tent in the historical sense yeah and it's difficult because I'm I've never been a looking backwards person I don't I don't idealize things you know we did have a, a ridiculously high rate of maternal mortality until the NHS mm. so it's not, not a in some ways it's a reimagining but I think the the model it it's not even the model I think the, the way in which we're approaching this itself is not new it's just not been done within the existing industrialization of healthcare yeah and and it's it's so frustrating that there's this i i see it as a, a straw man um division between birthers who want to do everything naturally and the the medical establishment when actually most of us have m- more than two feet in all of the camps and and lots of feet in the middle as well yeah and this is i think this is one of the problems in which what we the way we construct discussions around birth and I say we as as literally everyone everyone yeah. can kind of 
politicians to midwives to to women's groups to um to the nct all of it is that we kind of we, we've been we've been polarized into two camps yeah uh, and uh, similarly with breastfeeding kind of you know the lactivists and the and the um and the you know the the, the formula feeders it's not it's never that straightforward but i think again because i i'm you kind of need to talk to both me and Judy because she'll tell you all the practical, interesting things we're doing, which are novel and, and exciting. And I'll tell you about all the theory and the <laughs> concepts behind it. You kind of need the, you need the yin and the yang of me and Julia to yeah. make sense of it. Well, tell me the theory for now and we'll line Julia up later. <laughs> it's kind of, when you have an industrialised model, everything has to be scalable. Um, and in that sense, you can't possibly individualise something which has to work for everyone in every context, in every area. And it is really important in terms of, tackling health inequalities that we don't have what the Daily Mail likes to call a postcode lottery with care. Mm. You know, you should have the same options walking into hospital in Basildon as you do walking to one in Kensington. Um, and and that's that's not the argument I'm having. It's simply that kind of when care has to be scalable, when it, it, it kind of when it's it has to be top down because of these factors at play, it's impossible to make a care fit around a woman. She will always have to bend herself around the care. Yeah. And Whatever care that is, whether what you want is kind of, you know, an early induction and an epidural or an elective section or to give birth in, in a forest, it doesn't it doesn't matter. She will still have to in some way do these strange limbo contortionist acts to work around the system with that. And a good example um, recently was someone who um, wanted a home birth but um, had a paediatric alert, which would not have affected birth and would not have affected the immediate um, the immediate uh, kind of you know care the baby needed if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't an, an emergency but it wasn't that needed to be assessed and you know possibly treated and no one had any objections or not that it was their objections to have but the home birth wasn't an issue for anyone the problem was that it's hard to admit a baby postnatally if they have not been born in the hospital if it's not a blue light emergency and just this one system factor meant a huge amount of work and planning and consultations just to sort out what what she had to really kind of bend herself into this and do a lot of work to get to that point where she would have you know the birth option she wanted but still the baby would have the care that they needed if that makes sense and it really brought home to me that it's kind of maternity which is different from you know cardiothoracic surgery is not necessarily something that's very amenable to scalability. Mm. Um, obstetric care definitely is, but they're not the same thing, I think. Can you say more about that? Just that um, kind of the rarer the uh, safe surgery or, or treatment or disease, the better the outcomes if it's focused in smaller centres, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for um, paediatric um, device closure of a hole in the heart, there's only four centres in the UK because they, you need to do a certain number of the year to keep skills up, to keep the to keep the network around it functioning. So part of that's economic, but part of it is actually skill. It's better for the patients for that to happen that way. But pregnancy is a normal event. Um, birth is a normal event. Of course, it it can raise the risk of other more kind of you know more uh, what's the word more adverse events happening, which then do need medical care. But it's not in and of itself a a condition if that makes sense yeah but that would apply then to something like breech birth where there are only certain places where the skills exist yes yeah, i mean it's three percent of all births it's not a vaginal breech birth is locally you you can't do that they would refer you to 
at the hospital in Oxfordshire rather than do it here in Berkshire. Yeah, and it's it's a really it's a really so our idea was that, that it wouldn't be it wouldn't have, we weren't aiming for something which could be industrialised. That right from the very beginning we capped how big this organisation could possibly be within our own um, with our own um, terms of reference. Mm. That we would only ever work with up to six midwives. We would only ever have midwives doing a certain number of hours a month on average so that firstly no one was completely dependent on the the co-op for their income but also that it was kind of something which would always be personal by nature of the relationships within it but what we're intending to do when we finally get it all together and sorted and off the ground is to publish everything we're doing um, including the nitty-gritty of, of structure and and funding and um, kind of policies and things like that online so that it was replicable yeah. so that it could be by other people in other communities taking this as a resource a completely free resource and then doing something with it that was right for their community basically. yeah replicable rather than scalable exactly yeah although i was um i told off is the wrong word my partner said that um i shouldn't say that because actually replication is scalability and he said i should contrast industrialization with, with, with scalable replication if that makes sense but that might be him just being a political economist down there so yes. you can ignore that it's a little bit pedantic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why we love it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and that was really important to us as well because it was kind of, you know, this is, it may not work, you know, it may absolutely not work. We just don't know. So what but stage are you at with it? We're still in the planning stage. Still we've in the got, coffee stage. Yeah, and we're hoping that we'll start what we're calling the first wave um, before Christmas is the plan. So that, that we'll take, great. we'll kind of invite a small number of women to be part of the co-op and then, um, kind of work from there to kind of iron out the, the more you know we'll have everything in place but have iron out the minutiae of how we work with the hospitals how we work with the GPs identify any kind of you know hiccups we might have before we take more women um take see this is the thing my language is still very much of a service provider because we're not taking on anyone they're joining us it's 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 really interesting how much this has made me think about the language I use so we're kind of not calling things booking we're calling them introductions um, all the notes will be co-produced so they'll all be online with password protected so that um, women and, and their families and their partners can also just write straight onto the notes um, so that it's a collaborative document rather than a legal um, kind of paper trail in case we get sued. Yeah. Um, I mean, it will also be that, but that's, you know, with the focus is on it as a, as a story and as a resource for everyone, not on as a, a, a kind of, you know, a submitted in court document, which is what so much maternity notes are. Yeah. But I love that you're constantly aware of the language, even you trip over yourself, finding yourself using this industrial type language. And then you're trying to find a word that is not that. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, yeah, it's been a good learning curve. Are there any other examples of that that you can think of? Instead of uh, pilot, we went with first wave. Yeah. Um, instead of booking, we went with introductions. Um, I mean, everyone people won't be service users, they'll be members of the club, just as we are members of the club, the membership will be completely a flat structure, as co-ops are supposed to be. Um, uh, so there won't be any sense of overall direction of the of the organisation from the midwife, simply that we are contributing skills and other people are contributing other things, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and we will, we do intend to be paid for the, our time in kind of, you know, the most basic way possible. Um, and we're looking at ways in which we don't, want to start going down the road of being another service provider because we would have to then take some of the 
and I'm using air quotes here, power back in terms of things like policies and pathways. Yeah. We're trying to step away from. So there will, you know, there will have to be some contribution from people who are using the maternity service, or maternity kind of access to maternity, to midwifery skills. That's the way I should put it. Access to midwifery skills within it. Um, but of course, it's kind of you, you won't. You don't have to be either pregnant or a midwife to join. We've got several people who are kind of more wider stakeholders in the birth community in Sheffield who are interested in being part of it. So we're also hoping that we're going to be able to give offer free free skills to women who are um, in the uh, asylum process because mm-hmm. Sheffield is a big dispersal centre. Yeah. Um, and we felt, I mean, a lot of my previous career has been working with women in the immigration system. I worked for years for an organisation called Medical Justice, um, kind of helping and advocating for women in immigration detention. I've done lots of things around this, so it's kind of my, it's my passion as well. Um, but they are the women who most need a, a community around them, a community of of you know of, of women and mothers and families um because just by nature of of why they are here they're often quite divorced from their own communities in that respect um so that we're hoping that will be something we can kind of incorporate and encompass within the organization as well um and if you know if, if all goes to plan we hope to open it out to kind of any woman regardless of ability to pay um but you do need a certain amount of kind of you know structure behind you to get there i think yeah um, but yeah, as I said, it's completely experimental. Um, it was it was two uh, passionate radical midwives who were also bored academics. I think <laughs> <laughs> the brainchild of Julia and I. So, oh, I wish you all the luck with it. Thank you, thank you, Phoebe. This has been such a fascinating discussion. I could go on for another hour, but I feel like I'm just wobbling off on tangents though. <laughs> That's my favourite kind of interview. <laughs> Phoebe was talking about um, developing a, a midwifery community and moving away from the language of industrialized care um, to a much more individualized model. And it reminded me a bit of um, the farm. Oh, yeah. In, so, in some ways. And it was just very interesting to listen to her um, almost stumbling over her words because she's trying to rethink in the um, language that is individual and not not scaled up not as she says industrialized yeah uh, well dennis walsh is retired now but he, he's been writing about social models of midwifery for years you know and, and it seems to be a curse that we're, we're we're under that our profession is developing more along the lines of a medical model than a social model yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so she's moving back to, to a much more social model. Um, I have got a long version of Phoebe's interview, which I'll put on Patreon in a week or so. Um, at least I think I have, but owing to some laptop issues, I can't quite confirm that at the moment. You know, when we say social model and we say one-to-one care and we say moulding the service to fit the individual, all of those are great sound bites. Well, she, what... she's developing a small maternity cooperative, so a limited number of women, and the women plan and manage their own care. Um, right. So, you know, they are absolutely the the holders of the notes, not just literally carrying them around, but they they are in charge of what goes in them. So it's making the woman absolutely the centre of it, and, and it's very cooperative. So all the language is, is much more shared. I was going to say stakeholder, but that, again, isn't industrialised. Well, yeah, it is. but it, it was is, so yeah. interesting listening to her 
you could just hear her brain tick as she corrects her language. And I think that's fascinating. Well, good for her because, you know, Heidegger, language is the house of being where man dwells. You know, our thinking is, is constrained by our language and our behaviour follows our habits of language, in my opinion. Yeah, I, so, I knew you'd find this interesting because of that. Yeah, being, being aware of what's coming out of our mouths is probably the first step in transforming culture. So I'm just going to um, move us along to a question yeah. that came in from a colleague of mine called Nikki Sykes. And she's a newly qualified midwife. And she asked me to um, put the question to you. Does being exposed to women's constant pain make midwives lose empathy as a self-protection mechanism? Mm, I would say potentially. You know, you know um, dentists, for example, uh, the last time I looked at the literature, have a higher rate of alcoholism and uh, suicide than most other professions. And one of the issues uh, that was raised in the last, the last time I looked at the evidence was their perception of being a pain inflictor. Right, yes, because right. not just individually, but culturally as well yes you know yeah as a pain inflictor so uh, in terms i know a midwife doesn't wouldn't perceive herself as a pain inflictor but she's very much a witness of it yeah and sometimes may feel powerless to uh, if it that's within her personal makeup powerless to make any kind of difference and and that you know, perhaps I, also contributes to or is influenced by her you know gatekeeping of the pain management well, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I've worked with countless midwives and over the years I've seen sliding scales of uh, willingness, inverted commas, to offer pain relief options, you know, to the midwife that will that will offer pain relief even when it's not asked for, to, to the midwife who almost seems to be withholding that option. Yeah, well, I mean, I do hear that story postnatally. They wouldn't yeah. get me. Yeah, no, exactly. To, to my wife, I'm, my late wife, when she was giving birth to one of my children, had the Entenox snatched away from her. You know, you can't have that. What did you say about that? Uh, I was a nurse at the time, so um, I didn't say anything. Oh. You know, I mean, if, I, if I'd have been a midwife, if it had been now, I would have said something. <laughs> <laughs> But back then, I was—I think I was a student nurse, actually, ah, right, about, so, yeah. about to qualify. So, you know, it, having been a nurse first, the, the perceptions around uh, uh, the idea of being a health professional are very different yes. to, to, to being a midwife. And generally, I think that most first-time parents are in that position of trusting the health professionals. So if she says, no, you can't have this, you're going to yeah. assume, even though that feels terrible... Yeah. And assume that it's the right thing for you. Absolutely. And the source, of course, of, of a lot of social conditioning around birth education being one born every minute. And, you know, that really interesting episode where we reviewed the evidence, mm. uh, narrative evidence for one born every minute, uh, where all the consent giving moments are edited out. Yes. So everything looks like yes. a professionally imposed that's um, such a massive issue, isn't it? Oh God! When that that episode, when we talked about that, that was like a light bulb moment. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell! So the modes of birth statistically correlate on one born every minute 
with what's happening in society. That was interesting in and of itself. Yeah. So we're not seeing any difference uh, statistically. But all of the consent-giving moments and information-giving moments are edited out. I'd like to see a show that was just that. What do you mean? All the consent-giving moments? One consent-giving moment after another. Yeah, I don't think it's some kind of Machiavellian intent. I just it's just not it's entertainment, is it? Exactly. Un- unconsciously. Well, don't want that in, you know. Yeah. yeah. So we've got, um, again, connected interview from with Leah Hazard who has written a book called Hard Pushed which is a memoir of midwifery which um, is chapter by chapter sort of um, amalgam of experiences that she's had um, almost sort of the archetype experiences of any midwife Um, so would you like to listen to that? Yeah let's have that My name is Leah Hazard. I am a midwife and the author of Hard Pushed, A Midwife Story. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to this podcast. I read your book. It was really interesting. Good. Um, It's not out yet, is it? It's out today, actually. Today is publication day. Right. And today is the 2nd of May, as we record. And it will be a few short weeks before we get to put this out there. But we'll certainly be mentioning that we've spoken to you. Uh Um, That's very exciting. Yes, it's been a really exciting day and um, I'm delighted that the book has been really warmly received so far. Yes. Is it your first book? Well, I did write a book um, about 10 years ago called The Father's Home Birth Handbook, which I initially self-published and then it was bought in its entirety by Pinter and Martin. So in a sense, I'm being marketed as a debut author because this is my first sort of big commercial project, as it were. Um, But I have written a book before. What motivated you to write about your experience in midwifery? Well, I think I'd always thought from the earliest days of my career that it would be fantastic to write down some of the things that I saw in my day-to-day work because the things that happen in a maternity unit are stranger than fiction, um, funnier than fiction, more tragic, more outrageous, more entertaining. And I always thought that maybe it would be something that I would do when I retired. Uh, And sort of as time went by and I became more and more passionate about what I was doing and also to a point frustrated by some of the constraints of the system around me, I really thought that now was as good a time as any to tell my story and hopefully, although I can't speak for everyone, of course, hopefully uh, raise a voice for some of the midwives who felt the same. Right, so speaking out for for other people in midwifery and pointing out where the, the strains are in the system... Yeah, I mean, the book really is kind of it has a twofold message. On the one hand, it's it's a love letter to the women that we look after and we're hugely privileged to be caring for. Um, and the book really focuses to a great extent on, on their stories. Mm. But also it's a bit of a battle cry for us as midwives because we're doing an incredibly skilled, complex, challenging job within an NHS chess that is struggling and is under-resourced and I don't know if that struggle is recognized as fully as people maybe understand about doctors or nurses so so I wanted to kind of uh, raise up and speak for our profession as well as share some of the most moving stories from my work. Mm, It's recognized within our community isn't it but perhaps not Mm -hmm. so much on the outside and when when, um, you probably find the same thing but when I meet parents parents to be for the first time they don't know any of this they know so little yeah I think I mean there's the old cliche but it is true that when I I tell people that I'm a midwife 
quite often the response is, oh, it must be so nice to cuddle babies all day. (laughs) You know, it is very occasionally something that we get to do. And that is lovely. But it's a very, 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 very small part of what we do. And our job is uh, highly, highly skilled. So although cuddling babies is lovely, uh, there's so much more to midwifery that I would love to tell people about. Yes, I always think of it as as a fast moving, stressful, um, no time to take a lunch break type of environment. It it can be at times. I think it depends on where you work. Uh, I work in quite a large, busy unit. And for us, missing breaks is a common occurrence. And it is very busy. It is very fast paced. We've got a high uh, kind of throughput of women, if you will, if you couldn't even kind of put it that way. We've got a steady stream of work. Um, but not all midwives will feel that way. And some midwives will be well resourced or work in smaller units where there aren't the same issues. And, and that's absolutely fine as well. But I think from the feedback that I've had initially, even um, it does seem that there are many midwives whose experiences resonate with with mine as well. Hmm. I was also seeing some um, responses to the Times article that came out a few days ago. Yes. Um, from the midwifery community, some of them being a bit sort of worried for you and for your job. Um, has there been any repercussions or anything like that? Uh, not yet. Um, I can't really speak in detail, obviously, about the kind of situations with my job, but my colleagues have been really supportive so far. The women that I actually work with have been really positive and enthusiastic. So it's not a whistleblowing situation? It's not because I've I've really taken great care not to disclose where I work, not to implicate anybody specifically in what I've said or written. Um, I think that the issues that I've raised about the NHS are not anything new. um, And hopefully readers will appreciate that. Hmm. What's your favourite story in the book? I think it's kind of like having to pick your favourite child. I don't think I could, but they all represent different facets of the role. And there are days when um, things are are really moving and... um, challenging and there are days when it's triumphant and euphoric and hopefully the kind of range of stories will reflect that. Yeah I would say that it does. It, it, there's a, a huge range coming across there. It reminded me quite a lot of Adam Kay's book. Yes a lot of people will make that comparison. Certainly you know we will have had some similar experiences but I think that our voices are quite different. There's common aspects to what we've done but I think that readers will find that although there are some common threads it's it's a different kind of voice with a a different kind of message as well. Yeah and you're very much still in the job aren't you? Yes. What do you think parents-to-be will feel when they read your book? I don't know it's an interesting one. Some early readers who've read the book and who don't have children or aren't even thinking about having children have really enjoyed it. Obviously there are parts of the book that are quite eye-opening and maybe shocking to some readers. I hope that the overall message of the book is one of positivity and hope and shows that that birth is a, a varied but wonderful experience. So I hope that it won't scare anybody unduly. I, I think what I'd like people to understand is that although the book certainly shines a light on some of the darker aspects of the job and some of the challenges of the job really ultimately the message is one of hope for the profession I'm trying to really advocate for my fellow midwives and show readers that this is a job that should be valued and respected and widely uh, well regarded in the public eye and ultimately I, I would like readers to take away that that message of hope and appreciation.
Yeah, I think we at Spodcast are absolutely behind that message. That there's hope for such an important profession. And I think it did me really good to be reminded of, of all the effort that goes in and, and how highly trained and highly skilled midwives are. Thank you. Thank you for sending me a copy to read as well. It's a pleasure. You're very, very welcome. And if you have anything else that you need to ask at any time, just feel free to get back in touch. Thank you. I will. I think we should say the name of the book. It's Hard Pushed, A Midwife Story. It's published by Hutchinson and Hardback and ebook and the paperback will be out in January next year. And it's by you, Leah Hazard. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So you did the interview and I think you've written uh, a review of this book, haven't you? I have. It's on my blog, motherworldly.com. All right. And what are you saying next? I haven't read it yet. Um, I can't believe you don't read my blog. No, I, I read it. I read it. <laughs> it's all right. I'm I, I read it from time to time. Um, so I compared it with New Walk from Ellie Durant, which I would say would be my preferred book about midwifery. Yeah, it's fiction. Um, it is fictional, yeah. So if you're out sort of looking for something to read for the summer, then there's this. And I read something else called The Birth Keeper's Daughter by Kim Edwards, and that was quite interesting as well. It's more historical and right. certainly fictional. Um, Hard Pushed is more kind of semi-autobiographical as it were um right. and she has sort of pairs of chapters where she kind of ex explains something and then gives you a little story about it i felt yeah. a little bit like this was probably genuine midwifery coming across so a bit like one born every minute the the oh, consent gosh. doesn't feature much and it gives a a bit like um adam Kay's book gives a very um sort of clear focus on how overstretched the service is yeah um although adam adam Kay's book moved me to tears but there you go yeah yeah i think we we're both yeah. really blown away by that yeah. book so yeah it's something i think if if you were <laughs> looking for your summer holiday reading during your midwifery degree um or your nct degree this would be one of the books that you could probably pick up and have a look at on the beach yeah what's in the news karen we've got a few things there was an article um in in the conversation on the 15th of july headline teeth time capsule reveals that two million years ago early humans breastfed for up to six oh, yeah. years did you read this yeah well I, I dipped into it and we got a lot of really interesting comments about that it's an article that is about analysis of teeth found in these ancient fossilized skulls and it shows that um, that the babies would have been breastfed f exclusively for about six to nine months. And then it would have been supplemented with food for the next five to six years. And it uh, showed, it was, this was interesting, the balance between milk and solid food varied cyclically, probably in response to seasonal changes in food availability. So when there's plenty of food, they were getting less breast milk. And when there's a scarcity of food, they were getting more breast milk. The commenters yeah. on our Facebook page picked up on the phrase, however, breastfeeding for up to five, six years is metabolically expensive. It requires a certain input of calories for the lactating mother, which mm, I'm not going to contradict these archaeologists and experts. Uh, yeah, uh, metabolically expensive, but successful, right? Because mm. we're, we're still here. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the evidence for that presumably they also get from the teeth or from the fossils and surely in times when 
they are breastfeeding more because food is rare or food is scarce, then the mothers are going to be consuming fewer calories at the time that they are yeah. doing more breastfeeding. So it's not necessarily the more breastfeeding that's affecting them. No. It's, it's the it's... availability of food. <laughs> yeah, I think this is fascinating. Yeah, so. really, really interesting stuff. It'd be good to find out some more about it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe even an interview. Who knows? I'll write it on my list. Yeah. What else you got, Karen? Um, something that I want to come back to for a future episode. Women's Hour had um, in interviewed various people, including Elsie Gale, on the subject of black women being five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Something we have touched on before, but is certainly yeah. worth coming back to. I think so. <laughs> um, there have been a lot of headlines about toxic chemicals in everyday life affecting breast milk. Yeah. You know, it comes up, it's cyclical, isn't it? This comes up every now and then. I do ask myself how we would prevent cows from being exposed to environmental pollution. Yeah. But as my friend Megan did point out, cows are not as high up the food chain. Toxins are more likely to accumulate in breast milk. And this is the article from the analytical armadillo. She wrote a response to it, as she so okay. often does. Yeah. Um, have we had Have we had her on? No, but well, I'll put her on the list. I'm doing it right now. This is me writing. Charlotte Young, whose book I put a review on my blog yesterday. Okay. What's her book called, by the way? It's a Why Breastfeeding Matters book. Oh, is it? Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. Nice little book. And what did you, what did you say in your... Oh, nice little book. It is, yeah. I mean, Charlie tends to write with um, a slightly ranty tone. Oh. And that does come through in the book. So right. the style you're used to seeing on the blog is is pretty much how she writes in the book, and I enjoy that. Although although your own style isn't ranty. Oh, I try. Sometimes it is. I don't find it. So. Have you never read my review of Claire Byam Cook's book? No. What was the book called? Um, her book is called What to Expect When You're Breastfeeding and What If You Can't. Strongly recommend you read that if you want to see what I can be like when I'm ranty. All right. So you were angry, right? I wouldn't say angry. Contemptuous would be a better word. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about her for an interview? Nope. <laughs> I am not giving that woman the oxygen of publicity. Sorry, Mark. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, I, I want to say thank you while we're on to our page to Alex. Oh, yeah. She sent us a photo wearing yes. a T-shirt. She's rocking. I like what she's done with the sleeves. Yeah. Looks ace. Nice one, she's Alex. She's rocking. Is rocking that. You know, the summer is in full throw. People should be sponsoring us so they can get one of these T-shirts. I want to see the T-shirt featured in front of the Eiffel Tower or on the Grand Canyon. That's your summer holiday challenge, folks. <laughs> so what's inspired you this month, Mark? What's inspired me? I knew you were going to ask that. You did, um, because I ask it every month. <laughs> you do. You do. I'm, I'm embarrassed. You've got nothing. Uh, no. It's it's what I've been engrossed in that is embarrassing. Okay, go on. I decided, don't judge me, Karen. I might. You will. I cannot make that promise. I, I know. You and my wife <laughs> are, seem to have a gift of humility for me. Anyway, I get my most fiercest criticism Come on, from what you. Is it? I, I decided that I wanted to check it out because it's a bit of a cultural phenomenon. Love Island. <laughs> Don't laugh. Oh, okay, I, 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 I rationalised it because I thought everyone's talking, a lot of people are talking about it, not everyone. I have 
young adult children that are in, in, into it. There's been controversy about it because there's been a suicide after, an, uh, you know, a series of Love Island. And I thought, I'm going to watch it. And in my mind, I was thinking there'll be all kinds of language pattern stuff that I can use in my NLP work and stuff like that. And I've been gripped by it. Uh, I've been I've been pulled into the social dynamics of it all. I've been appalled by the toxicity of it in terms of mental health of the people in it. But yet it's it's been compulsive watching. It's it's kind of like you know those early days of the X Factor when it was obvious that people had mental health issues, and I didn't want to condone that by watching it, but almost felt compelled to. Yeah, and um, and Big Brother in its early days, obviously. Yeah, well, it's this is, nonsense, but well, this has got a very Big Brother feel. Yeah, oh. and um, the interactions between the people on it, and uh, yeah, it has inspired me in many different ways, with pathos, with um, compassion for people, the way some people are treated in the context of it, and I know it's not real, and my wife lambasts me for even you know, entertaining the idea of watching one episode. But it has inspired me. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Well, I think I think you've owned that, Mark. I don't think you should be ashamed. You have some positive and interesting things to say about it. Oh, what about you? Oh, mine's really boring after Love Island. Oh. oh. I've been reading um, a graphic novel by, and I don't know how to pronounce her surname, it's Lucy Knisley, which is right. K-N-I-S-L-E-Y. And she wrote a graphic novel documenting her pregnancy and birth. And Oh, that sounds really interesting. It is. It's fascinating and lovely, And except that the birth is terrifying. and She has preeclampsia and a crash cesarean, and it, the that part of it was actually, you know, that made me cry. But the journey up to that point, I, I enjoyed reading. Oh, that's, she's done a good job as an author if she's made you cry. Yeah, and I don't le read a lot of graphic novels, but I do enjoy enjoy them when I get into one. Yeah, what's it called? It's going to be it's, on the page. Oh, I didn't say, did I? It's called Kid Gloves. Fine. And I think she's know, written a, a postnatal follow-up as well. But I, te I tell you what, that sounds like another great interview. Oh, yeah. I'll put her down on my list. I'm writing the list as we go. So, anyway. So, yeah. I think... I think yeah. that's all we've got time for today. Indeed. Sorry, that was your line. That's all right. I've taken some of yours. <laughs> I just, I, I do want everyone out there to let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. That's where you'll find us. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And we're somewhere on Spotify as well, if you search for it. I did last night and found us first time, so it's not hard. Um, every single episode is on there. And if you're listening on iTunes, do leave us a review because that bumps us up the charts. Thank you for listening today. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.